Well, I'm delighted to be with you this morning. Uh, one of the, the fun things about being a part of this presbytery is that this is actually the first place I ever came when we first got here uh, a little over a year and a half ago for a presbytery meeting. It was here. And so to be here with y'all this morning with our whole family and all of our craziness is just really exciting. Uh, we're really thankful. And uh, it's been delight getting to know Carlos some over this past year and a half as we've passed. And the way he speaks of you is just beautiful. And so I'm excited that Lindsay and I and the kids get to come and worship with you and to uh, just get to know you a little better. So I'd love to shake your hand, say hello after the service uh, and just hear your story a little bit more. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 25. It's printed on the back of your bulletin or you can look at it in the Bibles in the pews. Um, and this, uh, this is a sermon that uh, is, it's got a lot of Advent themes that we're going to be going through. Um, and I think Often for me, um, when I when I was just growing up and all the rest, Advent was just solely related to like baby Jesus, and it was baby Jesus in that manger, and it was like that is the entirety of what I thought of when I thought of Advent. Um, and just the more I've learned over these intervening years, and in seeing that for us at this stage in history, as we who live after Christ has lived, died, and was resurrected, our Advent, the longing and the looking forward to that we have is when Christ will come again. It's not the baby we're looking for, it's the returning king who's going to come and make all things new. As our service is so beautifully laid out through song, through um, reading the scripture, and through prayer, is that's our hope, that's our goal, as we are looking forward to what Christ will come and do when he comes again. And so we're going to look to his word now and see what he would have for us this morning. If you will, look, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you've done wonderful things, plants formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in the dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. For the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the scale of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll pray real quick. Father, we're so thankful that you call us together as your people and that you give us your word that we might know you. Father, I ask that you would come and move in spirit, that you would elevate this text so that we might see you for who you are. Remove my foolishness so that your glory alone might shine forth. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you might remember where you were in June of the year 2000. 
And I, I can remember bits and pieces of where I was in June of the year 2000, but I remember distinctly the feelings that I had in the year of June, or 2000. Um, and that was this season of deep longing and anticipation because I was looking forward, the whole month was drawing towards July the 7th at midnight. That was going to be the day of just awesomeness because on that day, the fourth installment of the Harry Potter series was coming out. And, and so my little sister and I, we read those first three books like a hundred times in June. And then we were just asking like, what do you think's gonna be, you know, and we were just, we'd seen the cover art, they'd leaked early, and we were so excited. And all of us, I mean, there was so much excitement waiting to just get our hands on that book and read it as fast as we possibly could. Um, and, and thinking back on that this week, as I was thinking about this idea of waiting, like, I have different phases and kind of levels of waiting, I think, and different ways that I interact with waiting. And I would argue that most often, that kind of waiting that I had for a fiction book is not how I wait upon the Lord. Often when I'm waiting, it's, it's out of pure inconvenience and how dare you. And it's, it's I'm a person who so quickly is going to, if, if, you know, there's a... Uh, a big traffic jam, like I'm gonna get angry. It could ruin the whole day for just a small inconvenience, or as the waiter is just going to another table before ours, like, come on, isn't it our turn? And I think my waiting is often laced with this feeling of like, I deserve a little bit more than this. I deserve something a little quicker. Um, I often don't have waiting. And the question that Isaiah puts before us this morning is how are we waiting? As we look at verse nine and what the people proclaim when the Lord returns as he's talking about this feast, he asked, can that be our cry? Oh Lord, we have waited upon you. I think so often the posture of my heart is one that is just longing for something to be over quickly. I don't wait well. I wait with impatience often. Um, and often when I'm waiting, especially for the Lord in this way that Isaiah is laying out before us this morning, I'm waiting with a sense of almost hopelessness. Lord, how can you possibly come and do these things you promised when this world is going up in flames as it is, as the headlines come in again and again like a crashing wave when everything seems so wrong? And Isaiah puts this before us and says, how are you waiting? I'm gonna argue this morning that Isaiah is gonna lay out three different ways in which we can wait upon the Lord this morning. I think Isaiah is going to come forth and show how we are called to wait with faith, how we're called to wait with hope, and how we're called to wait with longing. Those three points, again, Isaiah is drawing us towards how we're called to wait. We're called to wait with faith, with hope, and with longing. Let's look at each one of those in turn. Looking first at how Isaiah is calling us to wait with faith. Uh, one of my professors, my, my Old Testament professor in particular, um, for the prophet said, Clay, if you ever come up to a passage and you're not quite sure what it's talking about, go back to the first verse. The first verse is almost always this like map legend, like a key for you that's gonna tell you what's gonna be coming next. And for me, when I was coming through this passage, I was like, okay, Lord, we're gonna need a lot of help. All the commentaries, all the friends we're gonna ask. And they kept driving me back to this first verse and saying that everything else that comes out is kind of an outworking of what Isaiah loads in this first verse. So let's look there um, first. It says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. One of the first things Isaiah puts before us is this reality that we are called to wait, remembering that we have a personal faith in a personal God. I don't know if, if it was printed in the bulletin this way, but if you look often in, in the ESV and the NIV translations, in the Old Testament, anytime the word Lord is in all caps, that's when in the Hebrew it uses God's covenant name of Yahweh. 
The name that he gave to Moses in Exodus, and it's this name that it's not this generic name for God. It is a personal name that the Lord has shown to us. And so one of the first things that Isaiah draws us to is how do we wait with faith? We wait with faith remembering that we serve a God who is longing to be known by us and he knows us deeply. And this is so beautiful because it's incredibly freeing that he starts out this way and saying, oh Lord, my God, he's saying, no, no, this is, my, this is relational. This isn't about checking off boxes. This is so freeing because it's not of, you've, you have faith by doing everything perfectly, by knowing all the catechism answers, by living this perfect scrubbed clean life. No, what Isaiah is drawing us towards is how we wait with faith is just having a little faith in a big God and knowing that God is big enough for all of our failures, for all of our, our misgivings and our doubts, and just saying, are you putting your hope in him? Or do you know him? Are you actually looking to him in this? And that's so beautiful because what Isaiah roots it in is relationship. It's not a ledger that we're trying to earn. It's not an economic thing which we are trying to balance, but rather a person whom we are called to know, God himself, Yahweh. And that is so beautiful it's also frustrating at times, if we're honest, because we love checklists. We love scratching it off and feeling that good, like we have rolled through our list and we feel great. But Isaiah is adamant here in showing forth that how we come and wait with faith is rooted in relationship with God. It is a knowing, a personal, loving God. It is all a gift of the Spirit. All we bring, as, as we've confessed even today, is humility and obedience and being able to say, I don't know enough. And Lord, I want to be new, I need to be changed. It's a dependent posture. It's one in saying, I can't do this on my own, I can't wring it together by just my own willpower. Lord, I wanna know you, help me know you. Um, and that is so beautiful because as all of scripture points out, it's this reality that we're coming and saying that before a God who says that he knows every word before it's even on our tongue. He knows the deepest crevices of our hearts and yet he still moves towards us in love and yet he still comes and says, you are my beloved son and daughter. And so we can come and be known in front of a God like that because we know that we are totally accepted and loved in his eyes. And so this relationship isn't something we walk to with sweaty hands wondering, oh, is he gonna reject me? But rather we can walk into relationship with the Lord knowing that he calls us his beloved. So beautiful. It's also Isaiah reminding us um, that we can wait with faith because God's presence is close. Look with me in verses four and five. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. Yet you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless shall be put down. I think it's so easy to think of God as distant and aloof to our very present problems. What I love about what Isaiah does right here is he tells us with, with all authority, God's not gonna sugarcoat your pain. He's not gonna say, man, if you just believed a little more, then this wouldn't have happened. Rather, he names it true. There's this, Isaiah is, is this poetic heightening that he's talking about, both in how he describes us and our plight and how he describes the Lord in his power throughout all of this chapter and the ways that he talks about it, right? This distress, you know, the ways of the, a storm breaking against a wall. The Lord looks at us and says, I see the pain you're in and I move close to you in protection. That is huge. I think it's, it's easy for us to like blow this off and be like, okay, Isaiah, listen, we don't have the Assyrians breathing down our neck. Like, okay, I don't have nations. But think about the ways in which you do have problems that raise up in your life. 
the things that make you question, am I going to have any help? Am I going to have any relief? Whether that's the diagnosis that comes back and it is cancer. Whether that's something in which you get the phone call from a family member and that marriage has fallen apart. When life gets really skinny, God doesn't run from us. God doesn't abandon us in that. What's so beautiful is that he sees us, knows us, and then moves towards us. He's emphatic here in how the Lord approaches us in our need. He says, he calls us, right? He calls us both the poor and the needy. And then he says, he moves towards us with these words of power as a shelter, as a stronghold. These are images that we can't hide from because they're right there in our face. And he says, don't think that I'm just like, you know, holding your hand from afar. No, I'm encompassing you with my love, my protection, and my hope. How we have faith in this is realizing how he moves towards us. This is a hard shift for us in America right now because we, most of us, live lives of untethered faith where we keep God in the abstract. We can give kind of cognitive assent to our salvation and like, yes, God is huge and real and I believe in him. But the question comes to us is, what do we do when we get that diagnosis back? Where do we turn when things go sideways? Perhaps to drink, maybe to just friends and being able to just talk it out. Maybe we withdraw back into our own minds. Where do we run and why don't we bring it to the Lord? That's what Isaiah is putting before us. is saying, look at who the Lord offers to you. This is not a guilt thing. This is, a, this is an opportunity, an invitation into the stronghold that promises protection, that promises beauty, that promises flourish, flourishing for us. He's inviting us to remember God's presence and help, and he's got, inviting us to remember God's character. Look at the very back half of um, verse one. For you've done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. In this one little clause, Isaiah is recalling forth all of redemptive history that the Lord has laid out across the scriptures. Remember who he is. He's the one who's the covenant God who is over all things and tied himself to you, broken human, in love. He promises that he will be faithful even when we are unfaithful. He promises that even as many times as we, we curse his name, as many times as we break his covenant, as many times as we sin against him, he still moves towards us in love. He is the faithful God who has continually tied himself to all of creation, even in the midst of its great pain and its great sin. And he says, I will be faithful and sure. Here again, it's, it's, we, we only get a piece of it in the translation, but that last bit of being faithful and sure, it's in the Hebrew, it's like he's faithfully faithful and really sure. It's this like overabundant, redundant promise of like, look at who our God is. He is one who will move towards you in love because that is his character. Remember his constant redemption. Of course, it is still true today. That's really hard to remember when the storms of life hit, when our anxieties go into overdrive. I'm reminded my last um, semester in seminary was one of the hardest points for me. I mean, both, it was the hardest classes were then, but the thing that was really hard for me was the actual job search process. Sending out applications all across the country, hoping, praying that someone would call me back. And week after week, not getting a call. And week after week, watching friends get calls. And week after week, believing all the lies Satan threw my way. I'm not called to this. You're right, Lord, I'm, I'm just an idiot. I can't go and do this. And again and again, what I'm doing is running and hiding in my pain. What I did again and again was just was go and just cry and try and outthink my way through it. 
instead of just coming and being broken before the Lord. I know, brothers and sisters, how hard it is to run to the Lord in the midst of our storms. What Isaiah is just beautifully, like gently calling all of us to is to remember he is one who moves towards us in love, offering his protection. Will you run to him? Will you run to him knowing that he will love you? And that, that is our hope, is that we can draw our eyes heavenward. It is about, in Second Chronicles, uh, there's this incredible scene that I just love so much, one of my favorite little chunks of the Bible. And there's this king um, who is surrounded by enemies, literally surrounded by enemies, and outnumbered like 10 to 1. Um, and he gets it right together, and they, cr- they pray, and he cries out, he says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And I love just the honesty of that prayer, um, because it's not saying, Lord, we need like all of your best lightning bolts right now. Like, we need you to come and wipe all these jokers out. Like, what he's saying is like, Lord, we are completely at the end of ourselves, and you're the only one that we can hope on. You're the only one we can lean on. It's this beautiful anchoring of ourself of saying where my faith is rooted is in who God is and his presence and closeness to me today in reality. Not removed in the past and the future, but right now. That is our great hope. That is how we can move and begin to wait with faith as we cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's from this foundation of faith that we look to see the other areas that he's bringing to bear in our midst, that he's bringing both salvation and judgment as well as we wait upon him. Look now with me um, as we look to lean into our second point of how we wait with hope. Look with me in verses six through eight. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I think it's easy for us to just imagine how we often wait with a resigned sigh, right? Just like, I mean, you saw my kids, right? Just like tapping our foot, just like, can you please just get that shoe on so we can go to school? That would be great. Like, let's go. You know, just this exasperation. Or perhaps for you, if you're waiting on a coworker again for a meeting and you're just rolling your eyes, shaking your head, thinking, come on, pull it together. We know what it's like to feel that kind of waiting. But the picture Isaiah is painting here is a waiting for a feast. He's talking about festal joy in our waiting. He's talking about something so different than my uh, exasperated sigh. He's talking about this longing of hope. Um, and, and again, Isaiah brings it forth in this beautiful language, in which again, he's being just like, didn't you just say that? Like, you talked about the wine twice, using the same words, like, why are you doing this? And it's so Isaiah can raise up before us, like, we're not talking about just like some, just like some, come over to the house and we'll order pizza. We're talking the best feast you could possibly imagine. Like you have got the ticket to the best feast that you could be invited to. This is something worth getting excited about. And this is where I think Isaiah comes and just very helpfully asks, are we excited about our own salvation? Or have we made it this cold, sterile thing in which we just are like, yep, we have it, and that's all? Or do we get excited about the reality that we've been made new through Christ? Can we actually have a smile on our face when we think about 
Look what the Lord has done for me. For me, the chief most of sinners, he has given his son. He has come and loved me in a way I could never deserve. And that's crazy. And that's awesome. And that should change the way I think. The way I interact. I mean, it should, it should change everything. Because we have been invited to this wedding feast of the Lamb. Can you remember what it was like maybe in elementary school waiting for that last day of school before summer started? You remember like, I mean, like my parents would have like the daisy chain up and you know, every, every day it's like, oh, here we go. You know, and it just, summer was this endless fun in my head as a kid, right? It was just swimming and running around in the woods with my friends and riding bikes and playing sports. And I longed for like that last bell, right? When you could just, we didn't toss up our papers because the teachers would have got mad, but you know, it just felt just like, I'm free, right? I can do anything. Um, I think that that's the kind of hope that Isaiah is injecting in our just cold faith right here. What he's saying is like, guys, the feast we've been invited to is astounding. And it's going to be richer food you can possibly imagine. And then he goes one further because he's like, it's actually not even about the food. The food is just for you to help draw this excitement like that last day of school excitement. What we're talking about here is the end of death itself. And that is crazy and beautiful and awesome because death is that thief of all joy, is it not? We spend our whole lives trying to ward it off, right? Whether through diets or exercise or any of the rest or, or scared of it or dreading it or you know, just praying against it. Death is that constant looming threat over us in our existence. And what Christ is saying, he's, or Isaiah's point to in Christ here is it's not always gonna be this way. It will not always be this way. The, the reality of the gospel is what Isaiah points to here about talking about when he takes away the reproach. He says Jesus is going to have to bear it. Later on in Isaiah even, he talks about the, the Messiah to come. He says he will have his beard pulled out and be spit on. He will bear all of the iniquities, all of the shame of us. Hebrews picks this up and says he'll even go outside the camp for you. He will bear the shame. He will take all of the pain we deserve on the cross, bearing all of the Father's wrath for me and for you. And we have to have that. But what brings our eyes upwards, which, which makes our hearts sing, is actually the empty tomb. We are an empty tomb people. We are a people who look to see the resurrection, this power breaking forth, in which we see the thing which we fear the most has no power over us anymore. The wages of sin is death, and death has been undone. This is what we read earlier from 1 Corinthians, which we can shout again and again with Paul, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? Through Christ, we have been made new. This is good news. The root of the word gospel is just good news. This is good news. And the scope is humongous. If you look again with me, it's all nations, all people. God didn't just come for one people group. He came to bring his flourishing across all of creation. And that is beauty. And he's not just inaugurated this, but he will bring it to completion. This is the same words that we see in Revelation 21 when he says that he will come again as he comes down and he will wipe away all sickness, all death, every tear from every eye. Sorrow will be undone because death will be banished forever. This is our hope. This is what actually gives us hope in the waiting. Because what this means is we don't have to just pretend anymore. We don't have to like paste on fake smiles and have perfect Instagram accounts or any of the rest. What we can do is just live in perspective of our salvation. This gospel hope of a feast that the Lamb invites us to. We are invited into the perspective of God's saving love. 
And while we all need that quickening love to be reawakened in our hearts and put before us and reminded of that feast, the reality is also that for some of us, we need this picture of the reigning king who will come to undo all of the injustice. We need the king who will come and undo the pain which we feel so keenly. Look with me in verses 2 and 3 and then 10 through 12. It says, For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It shall never be rebuilt. Therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. I think these are the areas of our lives in which we feel that tension of the already not yet most keenly. That Christ has come and defeated sin and death and yet he hasn't yet come to make all things new. This is the area where we live in. This is the area we're called to wait in. And it's a hard place to wait. Because we look and we see these concentration camps in China in which they are just bringing all of the Muslims together and putting them through just pure agony. We see the school shootings in Santa Clarita this past week, and we think, how, Lord? We see, perhaps, in your own midst or in our community, those who have been rocked by the deep scars of abuse, or the ways in which racism has torn down humanity and tried to inject this reality of a different system of living than how God wants it. We know the pain of the world. We feel it daily. We live in this world and we wonder, Lord, if you are a loving God, how could you let this continue? Lord, if I'm called to wait with hope, how in the world does this come in contact with the reality of the existence that I know in which there's often brokenness, pain, and darkness? How, O oh Lord? And our anticipation just turns to bitterness in our mouth. We just wonder, how can this be good news anymore? And it's good news in that we see Christ will not stand for it. We see our Savior coming down to bring true justice. We see him, as he talks about in uh, Matthew chapters 24 and 25, that he is coming in judgment, that he will come to separate the sheep and the goats, that he will come, and we see in Revelation 20, as the great judge who will come and right the wrongs. He will come to wipe away all injustice, right? This is what we have to hope in. He, his, his words, it's Christ's words to the martyrs saying, hold on, not yet. It's him saying, vengeance is God's, which shows the reality that God will come and make all things new. He will come and be a voice for the voiceless. He will come and right those who have been wronged. He will come and hold those accountable who need to be held accountable and protect those who are downtrodden and oppressed. It shows that we are called to call out, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. It invites us into this posture of longing. Longing for the peace that he is going to bring. Longing for the joy that we are going to get to taste anew when he comes. Longing for that moment when our tears no longer will crease our faces. Longing for the moment when sickness, sadness, pain, and death will be undone. It's this waiting posture of waiting just with all hope for what is coming for what is going to be for us, that he is going to come and make all things new, bring flourishing and peace. It's our longing for Christ. This is our hope. 
not in politicians, not in reform that we might see, not in living these perfect lives. Our hope is in Christ alone and what he will bring when he comes again. He is the one that draws our eyes. He is the one whom we have hope. In closing, a couple weeks ago, um, Lindsay and I, <laughs> we took the kids to uh, the Chrysler Museum of Art, which was uh, a fascinating experience of running through there, getting told by all the stewards to stop running, and then hoping we don't break any statues. But uh, we, were, we were struck as a whole family by this one painting that was, I mean, it was truly magnificent. It's this painting by this artist named Thomas Cole, and it's as big almost as that, it's probably half as big as that back wall in its entire, it's huge, it's stunning how big it is. Um, and we all just sat there, we're like, whoa, like how much paint would this have taken, you know? And, um, but it, the, it's the picture of when the angels come forth to tell the shepherds of Christ's birth. And it's this incredible, beautiful exposition of light and darkness. And you see all these little things that are, you can barely see them until you get real close to them because they're, they're such dark tones of different sheep the shepherds are over and different predators coming to try and take the sheep. And you just feel this coldness, this darkness. You feel like this sense of weight. And then in the top left corner, you see bursting forth in heavenly array, these bright angels with great joy. And you see the shepherds who are closest just bathed in that light with just these joyous smiles upon them. I think that that first advent is such a beautiful picture of how we are called to live now and this tension where we are and how we wait. Wait knowing that it is going to feel like darkness and death so often and yet our eyes are drawn to a glorious reality that Christ is bringing forth in our midst. He is coming to make all things new. And so brothers and sisters, I hope that today we can learn to wait with faith that we can lean into the full assurance of God's love and character towards us, that he provides us a safe hold in the midst of our pain. Brothers and sisters, I hope that today we can learn anew how to wait with hope, that we might lean into the festal joy of our salvation, that it might change the way we think about our everyday. Brothers and sisters, I hope today we can learn to wait with longing, longing for the peace that Christ alone can bring, that he promises to bring for us and all of creation in glorious array. I hope that verse nine can become our declaration, that we can cry out with the saints, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let us be a people that in the midst of the storms of life cry out, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for the ways in which you continue to chase us down with your love again and again, the ways in which you meet us in our brokenness and give us this picture, the picture of Christ, to draw our eyes to him so that we might know your goodness, your beauty, your love, so that you alone might receive all honor and glory. So God, come and bring this message into our hearts so we might know you more fully. Pray us in Christ's name, amen.